Our psalm of the day comes from Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia entire with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Galatians chapter 4. We are reading verses 1 through 11. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons." And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we do gather around your word this morning, we ask that you would speak that your spirit will illumine and give our hearts understanding and that we know how to apply these great truths of the gospel, the news of our adoption through Jesus Christ into our lives. We ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. One of my favorite novels is George Steinbeck's East of Eden. If you hang in with my preaching over the years, I imagine I will quote the entire novel for you. It's a beautiful work that entails understanding the tragedy of our humanity and redemptive suffering, and Steinbeck unfolds that from the perspective of a non-Christian, but he takes us into the intricacies of the human heart. It's a novel about a man named Adam Trask, who was a wealthy landowner. He had inherited a good sum of money from his father. He has two sons, twin sons, Aaron and Cal. And Adam lived a tragic life. He was shot by his wife. He recovered from that, but she left him, and he never fully recovered. His dreams were just dashed on the rocks, and he lived in a depressed state. He pulled back from everything. He was full of self-loathing and self-pity. 
At one point, he does seek to get back on his feet, and he invested a large sum of money at that time in refrigerated rail cars. It was before refrigeration was common, and this would allow for fresh produce grown in California to be shipped across the United States. It was actually a genius idea to use the rail cars for this. But he was ahead of his time, and the idea busted. It went nowhere, and he lost his entire investment. His son, Cal, was desperate for his approval. Cal was one who was always seeking after approval. In fact, Steinbeck says this, that Cal's trying to find himself. I guess this personal hide-and-seek is not unusual. And some people are it all their lives, hopelessly it. Steinbeck was saying that Cal, his character, was playing hide-and-seek, seeking after approval. And he was it all of his life that he was never able to quite find it, to discover it. And so Cal, in response to his father's failures with the railway cars, decides that he was going to make up that money. That was an enormous sum, but he was going to earn it. And so he contacted a local businessman named Will Hamilton. And Cal began to devise a scheme. It was very ingenious and clever. Cal was extremely smart. He was brilliant. But then Will asked him, he says, why do you desire to make the money up for your father? Listen to Cal's response. He says, my father is good. I want to make it up to him because I am not good. So then Will asked him one more question. He says, do you mind if I press one step further? He says, suppose you should get this money and give it to your father. Would it cross your mind that you were trying to buy his love? And then Cal responded. He said, yes, sir, it would. And it would be true. That his soul was laid bare there. That his game of hide and seek was about trying to gain and earn his father's approval and his love. That he desperately wanted to buy it. He was looking to end the game of being it. And though he was the son of Adam Trask, he acted like an outsider one who had to earn his way into the family. It was a tragic story, but it's also a parable that we can be in the family, that we can be called a son and a daughter, and yet we cannot relate to the family that way. And this was what was happening in Galatia, that they had received the free gospel, the offer of God's grace, of his reconciling love in Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself on their behalf, who had done everything to procure their redemption. But after Paul leaves in his missionary journey, some other teachers arrive to the Galatian church and they begin to declare that these Gentile Christians who had converted now must observe the Jewish Torah, that they must submit themselves to it. And this is what's happening in verse 10 when Paul says, You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I have labored over you in vain. And he is referring to their adoption of the Jewish calendar system. This was the calendar system that was prescribed in the Torah. And what we find here is that they were giving themselves to the sign of circumcision, to the calendar observances, the observance of the Sabbath and uh, the Jewish Sabbath, and also to the food laws. These were the major markers of Jewish identity. 
And Paul says that everything is at stake. He says, I'm, a, I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain, that you're throwing all of the grace of God on the rocks here. Everything is at stake. And so with polemics and with persuasion, with all the force that the apostle can muster, he opens up in order to convince the church of its freedom. He wants them to understand who they are and what God has done for them in Christ. And so what exactly does this freedom entail? This is what we encounter in chapter 4 and verses 1 through 11. And there's three things about this freedom. The first is that it is a freedom from the curse of the law. And the second is that it is a freedom that comes through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And the third, that it is a freedom for God to then be a son. And so let's look at each of these in order. First in verses 1 through 3, we see that we are free from the law's curse. Paul says, I mean that the heir... And what's happening here is Paul is now further explaining what has just happened in the very complicated verses ahead of this. And he's now summarizing and clarifying. And so if you were unable to follow last week in what is a very difficult argument, Paul is now going to try to make it very plain. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. He's referring here to Roman customs in which a child, as long as he was under tutelage and before he had reached a certain set point in maturity, that he was just like a slave. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And what Paul is saying here is he's explaining historically how the law fit into the nation of Israel's life. That it was a guardian, that it was something like a tutor, and that it had a specific function, but it was never intended to save the people of Israel. In fact, in verse 22 of chapter 3, Paul explains why the law was given. He says, But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That this was the purpose of the law, these elementary principles, or the ESV can also translate that elementary spirits, which is also what you could call idolatry. This is what the law does. It imprisons us to our idolatry. It exposes that. It lets us know that we are locked up under sin. And that is what happened in Israel. That was the reality of the historical situation. That they were just like anyone else, but under the weight of the law, they were confined in sin and wrapped up in it and trapped by it. When I lived in Arlington, Virginia, I had some work done on the front door of my house. And in front of that front door, there was a glass door that had to be taken off. And it was springtime, and so everything was starting to bloom. And fescue is the grass that you grow in that climate. It was nice and green and lush. The next day after the workers had completed their job, I remember driving up to the house and noticing a perfectly square rectangle of dead grass in the middle of my front yard. And my immediate thought was, what did my children do? <laughs> and then I began thinking about the workers' actions from the day before. 
and they had taken off the glass door, and they had then placed it in the yard. But I thought, no, it wasn't laying there long enough to kill the grass. But then I remembered the entire reason we were having the work done is that that front door, when the morning sun came in on it, it then focused like a laser beam onto the wood door behind it, the the heat of the sun. It would get incredibly hot. And then I knew what had happened to my grass. It had been burned alive, scorched by the sun coming down through it, and then burning literally the earth beneath it. And friends, this is the function of the pedagogue, the law of God is that it exposes, it places us under a curse. And this is what happened in Israel. And so Paul is arguing with them that we must understand that when you're before age, this is what the law was for. But now that maturity has come, now that Christ has come, He has redeemed us from the curse of the law. This is the argument in chapter 3, verse 10 and 14. That Christ went under the law on our behalf to free us from the law. And so don't retreat back to it. He goes to this also in verse 8 when he speaks predominantly to the Gentile converts. He says, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. You see, not only the Jews were under the curse of the law, but the Gentiles were because they were outside the law. They were locked up in idolatry as well. They were enslaved to false gods. And the argument that Paul is making is that in Christ Jesus, we have been freed from all of this. We've been freed from those idols that once controlled us and enslaved us. And now you're trying to return to it. And you're free actually from adding anything to faith in Jesus, to the free offer of the gospel, of God's reconciling work, that you can't spruce that up, that a supplemented Jesus is a supplanted Jesus. And that you've been freed from trying to supplement him. And friends, this is where the charter of the church is at stake. That when we add anything to it, which these Galatian teachers were doing, that we are forsaking Jesus and we're compromising him. Recently, I was speaking with a friend about her family and asking about her brothers and specifically about where they were in their spiritual walks. And she said, well, my younger brother has struggled some, but he's returned to church recently and has been involved in a Bible study. And I said, well, what was his struggle about? And she said, well, we grew up in church, a very strong church-going family, but our particular church, which is a good gospel-preaching church, has a school, and our family didn't attend the Christian school there. It was known as the academy. And she said, what happened was is that the academy became such a force in the church's life that if you weren't part of the academy, you were considered to be on the outside. And so my brother felt the weight of that, that we were considered somehow second-class citizens. And that was despite my dad even working at the church, that we didn't belong And friends, this is how it subtly works itself out in church culture today. There's not very many places you will find where observance of the Jewish law are necessary in order to walk in the doors. But we come up with much more clever and intricate schemes where we can make you feel like an outsider based on certain behaviors of doing certain things that you have to go to the academy or you have to do quiet times or you have to do this. 
that we lay up obligations on people if they're going to belong, if they're going to be part of things. That's what had happened in Galatia, and this is the mistake that we repeat today. And Paul's gospel is pleading with us that we allow the gospel to be free, that you allow the gospel to run in its freedom, that we're free from the curse of the law, from all the idolatries that can hold us, and we're free from any system that would add to the gospel. And so keep it free. The second freedom that Paul is contending for here is in verses 4 through 5. And we see that where this freedom comes from, that it comes through Christ. Follow his argument. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And you see here what Paul is doing is he's drawing all of this history of the end of the curse of the law around one person, and that is around Jesus Christ, is he doesn't put you at the center of this story. That actually at the center of all history, there is this climatic moment when Jesus is sent from God to be born of a woman, born under the law. That God had to save the world through the Jewish people. That the curse of the law that represented the condemnation of the Jewish people and the condemnation of the Gentiles had to be dealt with. And so Jesus dies on the tree, chapter 3 tells us, in order to receive that curse in himself. And friends, that brings an end to the curse of the law. And that now we are adopted as sons, that we stand right with God because of Jesus and what he's done on our behalf. And that Jesus is therefore the central figure. That you can't get away from him. You can't get beyond him. That you can't escape him. When I was a kid attending church, I remember my church getting a new pastor. His name was Malloy Owens. He died about a decade ago. But Malloy was a fine preacher. And he came preaching Christ. And our church was somewhat divided. It was a mainline church had different interests and different parties inside of it. And there was a church meeting called after Malloy's first set of sermons. And this is what was said at the meeting. If I hear the name Jesus again, I'm going to leave the church. That there was a party in the church that was deeply vested in the church's profile in the community of caring for the poor a very good thing, and they wanted to hear about God, and they wanted to hear about what it meant to be a good neighbor, but they wanted to get past all this stuff with Jesus, being born of a woman, born under the law, born in order to die, in order to suffer, that he might redeem. They wanted to get away from that, and so we want to get away from Jesus, and let's get to our neighbor. And friends, they were asking for something true. The Bible does speak of neighbor, but that is a secondary response to the first and great commandment to love the Lord our God and what he has done on our behalf to save us in order to redeem us. And so Jesus was being displaced by something secondary. And this is what happens in the church's life is we allow different agendas to become important. 
And Jesus somehow then ends up on the sideline when he is to be absolutely everything. And this is how Paul argues that you don't get past Christ. You can't abandon him, that you have to hold him central. And so though it was a criticism, it was perhaps the best compliment that could be ever given to Malloy Owens, that he was saying, Jesus, too much. (laughs) That we have to keep him central. We have to remind one another to do so. That those events in his life 2,000 years ago are at the center of history. They're at the center of our understanding. They actually orient everything about your life today. But friends, this is what we have to hold on to. Jesus at the center, that we're free through him and in him. That we have been crucified with Christ. That through the law, we have died to the law. That is because Jesus went under the law on our behalf. It is what God has done for us. Not what we do for God that is the measure of our freedom. Now, the third piece to this freedom, though, is found in verses 6 through 7. We see that we're free for God. It's not just that we've been freed from something by Jesus. It's not just that we're freed through Jesus, but we're now freed into something. And this is where Paul goes, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And what Paul is attempting to wake the Galatian church up to, and what he rattles us with today as well, is the declaration. A declaration that doesn't arise from your feelings or experience, but rather a declaration that is made about those who have faith in Jesus. That we are now sons no longer slaves. It doesn't depend upon how we feel. This is what God declares. This is the charter of your emancipation. It's what God says about you. And friends, this is the challenge for us today. As we sit in the church under this charter of freedom, is that we have to believe this thing that we often don't feel and that we often don't experience. That God says that we are no longer slaves, that we're no longer captivated by the curse of the law, and we, don't, we no longer live in systems in which we add to the law, add to the gospel. That that's not what we're doing. But now we are sons. And that we're sons and daughters, heirs of God. This is what He has given to us. And you have to fight to believe that. Because the reason it's happened is all because of that Christological event in which Jesus came and lived a righteous life. And then that he laid aside his life on the cross. But then that he was raised from the dead. And he was declared to be innocent because he actually hadn't sinned. And that because He is the true Son of God, we now share in His Sonship. That we've been adopted. That we share in Jesus' place in the family. And so it has nothing to do with us. And so no longer slaves, we're sons. Adopted, but not second-class citizens. You see, the way that the Roman law worked is that once you were adopted and brought 
into the family. You were truly a son. You received everything that the son would receive. It was a legal declaration that was made in the court. And it had nothing to do with your experience. And that is what Paul is pleading with us. Because now we've been freed for an intimacy with God that we cry out to Him, our Father. That is to acknowledge Him as our great King. That we now know God, he says in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, and then he corrects what he says, and this is beautiful, or rather to be known by God. And Paul here places the emphasis on the initiating work of God that reconciles us to him. That God is the one who takes the initiative with us. We now know him because we've been known by him. That that's the intimacy that this new family now receives. This is what is yours. And so stop playing hide and seek. Stop trying to earn something. Stop trying to add to something that you can't. That that contradicts the grace of God. And this freedom is an inheritance. An inheritance freely given to you. It's the inheritance of righteousness. It's the inheritance of the freedom from sin's curse. It's the inheritance of the world to come still. That that's all yours. And friends, we convolute that. We contradict it. We compromise it in all kinds of ways. And Paul, when we do that, rattles the cage. He calls for us to remember that we don't play hide and seek with God. That we're not perpetually it on a search. But rather God is the one who goes on the search. And we've been known by Him. And so we're called to give up our ways of trying to add to that gospel. Don't add to it. You can't. And when you supplement Jesus, you supplant Him. Allow the gospel to be free. Let's pray. Father, we do celebrate Your sending Your Son into the world to be born of a woman, born under the law, that we would die to the law through the law, that He received our curse on the tree, that we can be freed. And we've been freed from its idolatry. We've been freed from its observance. And Lord, we ask that we would walk in the measure of that freedom. May we recognize who we are Who we are has been declared by Jesus. This is what is ours. May we embrace it in faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.